Tonight, straight from the source, the first televised hearing in the Georgia case and the very first ruling. Two of Donald Trump's co-defendants are stuck together after the judge denied their request to try them separately. What it all means, though, for the former president. Plus, a murderer's daring escape all caught on tape. We are seeing for the first time exactly how a Pennsylvania fugitive broke out of prison. He is still on the run tonight. And also, the Justice Department now says it will indict Hunter Biden sometime this month, according to the special counsel on his case, the charges that his legal team is now bracing for. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. It was the first televised hearing of any of Donald Trump's criminal cases, and we learned a lot as to where this election interference trial in Georgia may be headed, Included how, including how the judge overseeing his case runs his courtroom, what he is thinking about trying Trump and all 18 co-defendants together, what the prosecution has in its arsenal, and also how long all of this could potentially take. Fulton County prosecutors estimate that they will need about four months or so to try their case, with more than 150 witnesses to be called. But Judge Scott McAfee said that he thinks it could easily be twice that, as in eight months from start to finish. And he appeared deeply skeptical about District Attorney Fonnie Willis's pledge to try all 19 co-defendants together. This is going to be a case with a, a lot of pretrial motions. And again, uh, I don't know how many hearings we're going to need to have to sort through all those. Uh, but if we compress our timeline to 40-something days, uh, our ability to even be able to really weigh those and think through these issues, again, it's, it just seems a bit unrealistic to think that we can handle all 19 and 40-something days. A bit unrealistic in the judge's words. We know so far that two will be tried together. That is the two co-defendants who asked for speedy trials. Pro-Trump attorneys Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesperow, despite arguments from their attorneys today to separate their cases. Her charges are way more provocative versus the boring old charges that we have as far as just sort of the paperwork type situation. What he's accused of has absolutely nothing to do with Ms. Powell. Sever Ms. Powell's case for Mr. Chesbro so she can get a fair trial. Judge McAfee was not buying that. He said they did not meet the legal standard to separate their cases. And now the plan is to make their October 23rd trial date stick. We could hear more from the judge, McAfee, who is overseeing all of this soon, about the rest of the trial schedule and what that looks like. A big question, what does this all mean for Donald Trump? He was seen in New York City here this morning, today emerging from Trump Tower, after saying in an interview that he will happily testify on the stand in his own defense. We'll get more to that in a moment, but first, I am joined now by former Georgia Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, attorney and former Georgia State Senator Jen Jordan, and former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. Ellie, we watched this remarkable, in the sense of typically this wouldn't be remarkable, hearing play out today, hearing these arguments from these attorneys, getting a sense of what the, the prosecutor said as well. What were your biggest takeaways? So it was so interesting to watch, and it brought me back to my prosecutor days. The biggest takeaway to me is the people, the defendants, who really wanted to get away from each other, got away from each other. Now, Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesbro, who both want their speedy trial, they were not able to get away from one another. But to me, that's not a big deal. So Chesbro and Powell are going to be tried together. That doesn't really hurt either of them. More importantly, they both got away from Donald Trump because it is 99% certain the judge made it clear that Donald Trump and the others are going to be tried much later than these two. And from Donald Trump's perspective, really important that he got away from those two because A, he gets to get tried 
much, much later, which he wants, probably mm-hmm. after the election, and B, he gets to watch their trial. And remember, the prosecutors today said the case against these two is going to be the same as the case against all 19 of these defendants. He's going to get a free look at their evidence way in advance. Yeah, and the judge was so skeptical of this idea of trying all of them together, really just the enormity of what that would even look like. But what was your sense of just seeing him himself, how he was running his courtroom, what he is going to be doing in this? I was really impressed. He's 34 years old. Um, He has experience as a federal prosecutor. He knows what he's, and a state prosecutor. He knows what he's talking about. He understands the practical, virtual impossibility of trying 19 people together. And he was in control of his courtroom. That was a dignified, straightforward, substantive proceeding. And I think the lawyers did did a really good job as well. So I give everyone credit for a a strong proceeding today. All gold stars from L.A. (laughs) Jen, you are a former state senator in Georgia. Fonnie Willis was not actually in the courtroom today. But one of her prosecutors said that they believed it would take the state about four months to try their case. They'd use about 150 witnesses. That does not even include the time to pick a jury. And as we know, it takes a very long time for a case like this in Georgia, what do you make of that timeline? It, it seemed a little unrealistic. I mean, if you just even think about like five days in a in a week, um, and plus there are going to be instances, just like the judge said, where people are going to get sick, there are going to be issues, there are going to be problems. And if we're talking about a trial that long, think about the jurors, right? These are people that have children, that have lives, um, that have jobs. And a lot of times you don't get paid, you know, especially if you're an hourly worker. So there's going to be a lot that's going to have to go in on the front end in terms of picking the jurors. Um, in terms of who could actually be a juror and stay on the juror for the whole time that it's going to be necessary in order to hear the case. But big props to the judge. I agree with Ellie. Um, Very even-tempered, smart, handled the lawyers appropriately, and really seemed to be in control of the courtroom. And I think that is going to be incredibly important um, as we kind of move forward with this case. Yeah. And Jeff, uh, part of what we saw in there were these attorneys for Sidney Powell and for Kenneth Chesborough Uh, really both seeking to downplay their clients' actions in this alleged conspiracy. I mean, we heard Chesborough's attorney saying it was just boring paperwork stuff. He's the alleged architect of the fake elector scheme. I mean, contrast that with what the reality of what was actually happening in your state at these times. Yeah, I I was caught off guard at how captivated I was. It took me back to all the classes I missed in college watching the O.J. Simpson trial today. uh, what I was watching today. But yeah, the sharp elbows came out really quickly, listening to Kenneth Chesborough's attorney, uh, and Sidney Powell's attorney kind of throw sharp elbows at each other, like, oh, my client you know, didn't really do much wrong. The other client, you know, the other person being represented did. And I think that's really what we're going to see play out. Um, look, nobody has any allegiance to Donald Trump anymore. Nobody really cares about Donald Trump's future. They care about watching their kids graduate from high school. They care about watching their kids get married. They don't want to be in jail or prison for that matter. Uh, I think as we watch this play out, America is going to meet a low-rent mob boss and not a former U.S. president when we watch all these grueling details, these sloppy procedures to just try to selfishly overturn an election so he didn't have to say, I lost. That's what this all comes down to. And these poor people, and some of them self-inflicted wounds and some got hoodwinked, are going to have to pay the price for for following along. Well, I mean, Jen, there's a lot of people there, a lot of co-defendants here. And this is kind of the first preview of seeing them point the finger at each other. I mean, Sidney Powell's attorneys and Kenneth Jesper's attorneys were trying to be respectful of each other, saying they weren't commenting on the evidence, but saying, we have nothing to do with that other person. I mean, how much more of that do you think we could see if it's the other 17 co-defendants being tried together? 
I think it's going to get out of control. I mean, the, the thing that came out of um, one of Chesbro's um, attorney's mouth was something to the effect of, I am scared to death <laughs> to think that we're going to be trying the case with her and with the allegations against her. And then, of course, Powell's lawyer was the same way in terms of them very much pointing the fingers at each other. Um, I think at one point, uh, one of Chesbro's um, lawyers even said something to the effect of, well, you know, um, after Sidney Powell said something crazy, that's when the Trump team, you know, um, basically fired her and let her go. And, it, and they were all like as an aside, right? They were just kind of these elbows. Um, and then the next thing out of their mouth, but, you know, respectfully, you know, to the attorney at the table, um, I think this was just a real preview of what we're going to see. And look, if, if that's what's already coming out of their mouths this um, early, I mean, really, the fireworks are really going to start going off because, as Jeff said, people do not want to go to prison. And, and that is a real reality for a lot of these folks. Yeah. I mean, Ellie, we were listening to the, the judge here and was essentially saying, uh, or the, the prosecutors here and what the, they were pushing back on this idea that, oh, well, Sidney Powell didn't really know Kenneth Chesborough. Kenneth Chesborough didn't really know her. They didn't talk. Prosecutor said, that was because the conspiracy was evolving. When one thing didn't work, they moved on to the next thing. When that didn't work out, they moved on to the next thing. But they all still have something that was the center of this, which was keeping Donald Trump in power. Right. So first of all, point of law and logic here. Co-conspirators do not have to know one another. You'll hear that a lot. It doesn't matter. As long as they were all united around one common scheme and agreed to it, and it can be through a second person. Now, this is something that we will see play out at trial. Defendants will always ask the jury to try to sort of focus on as narrow a sliver as possible. In this case, they'll say, there's 161 overt acts in this case. My client was involved in six of them, in eight of them. And we heard some of that today from both of these defendants. Prosecutors are going to urge the jury, focus on the big picture here. They were all acting together. They all had a common goal. And the prosecutor said, what happened here is this effort evolved. They tried one thing, it failed. They went to the next thing, they went to the next thing. They're all in it together. They're all responsible together. Watch for those arguments when we get to a trial as well. Yeah. And Jeff, you know, you mentioned you felt like you were watching the O.J. Simpson trial today. I mean, the fact is everything we saw happen today, none of this matters if the case does get moved to federal court, as some defendants are trying to do. The judge himself brought that up today, the idea of, of taking some of this to trial, then having a federal case swoop in and take over. But it would also mean no more cameras. I mean, how effective do you think the ability to watch all of this unfold can be for people in your party who still support Donald Trump and his bid to be the Republican nominee again? Yeah, I think cameras are, are critical for recovery in this country, right? Whether Donald Trump uh, is able to be exonerated and he's able to produce that one file, that one email, that one video that we've all been waiting for, or Sidney Powell finds the Kraken folder that she's been looking for for two and a half years. Uh, but they, I think the cameras are important because if we're going to heal as a country, and that's Democrats and Republicans and folks in the middle, we've got to really be able to see this in the rearview mirror. And watching this play out, like I said a second ago, I think America is going to meet a, a low-rent mob boss instead of a former U.S. president. They're going to meet somebody who's been able to manipulate and, and, and steer people in, in intentionally wrong directions. And this argument that Chesborough and Powell didn't have anything to do with each other. You know, they were both trying to rob the bank at the same time. One was working on the vault and one was working on the ATM. They may not have crossed paths, but they were trying to rob the same bank full of votes. That's what this is going to play out as. Jen, what do you make of District Attorney Fonnie Willis trying to, to file a motion to shield the identities of the jurors that you were mentioning earlier? I mean, we saw how those who were being doxxed, their information was being leaked online when it just came to the indictment. This is something that typically in Georgia, it's part of their transparency laws that, that it is made public, but she is now trying to keep it secret 
for that reason. Well, and look, it's not that their identities necessarily would be kept secret. It's just that their images couldn't be, um, basically when you're in the courtroom, right, that, that you're not panning to the jury and showing folks who they are. And I think that is important because as important as transparency is, and I do think Jeff's right in terms of, I think it is really significant that people see what's really going on and not having it filtered um, through some kind of, uh, you know, social medium or podcast host. Um, at the same time, we have to understand there are real people here and those jurors are going to be effectively putting their lives on the line because we know exactly what happens um, when you are in this position. Jeff knows he's had death threats. I've had death threats. Everybody that, that I know that have popped their heads up and criticized Trump at all, um, people have gone after them. So I do think it's incredibly important. Um, if for no other reason, then we need to make sure that the jurors feel safe um, so that they can actually do their job and not be worrying about the safety of their families every day. And as we were watching all of this play out today with this hearing, we did hear from the most famous defendant of all of them, Donald Trump, when he was asked this question. So if you have to go to trial, will you testify in your own defense? Oh, yes, absolutely. You'll take the stand. That I would that I look forward to. Trump says he would look forward to it. But keep in mind what his former attorney general, Bill Barr, told me recently about the idea of Trump being on the stand. And, and what would happen if he got on the stand? I think, uh, I think it, would not look, it would not come out very well for him. Do you think it would hurt him? Oh, yes. Yes. Why do you think that? Well, because I think he'd be subject to very skilled cross-examination, and I doubt he remembers all the different versions of events he's given over the last few years. Ellie, I mean, he would obviously be vulnerable on the stand, but would Trump need to take the stand to, to mount a, a defense? Would he be able to do that without testifying? He absolutely would not need to take the stand. I, you're going to make me say it. I agree with Bill Barr there, even though I wrote a book, very critical of him. I think he's absolutely right that it would be a disaster for Donald Trump to take the stand. Important to know, no defendant has to do anything. We always say, what's the defense going to be? Often... Defendants put on no defense. They just say, Your Honor, members of the jury, we don't think the government has met its burden of proving this case beyond a reasonable doubt. So defendants rarely take the stand in real life. And often defendants put on no case whatsoever. They don't have to. It's the prosecutor's burden. And I believe Trump was talking about the classified documents there. And as you and I were watching what was happening in Georgia play out today, we, we found out that Yusel Tavares, who was known as employee number four, is now cooperating with the government, with Jack Smith's investigation. We had an inkling of that after he changed attorneys. We saw the superseding indictment. They have now made it uh, official. I mean, how big of a win is that for Jack Smith's team to secure the cooperation of someone who works at Mar-a-Lago? It's a win. You need, you need witnesses like this. But to me, it's not a game over type win because as far as we know, and based on the indictment, Trump employee for Mr. Tavares, he did not have direct contact with Donald Trump. I read back through the whole indictment. There's mm -hmm. no allegation that he ever met with Donald Trump, spoke with Donald Trump. Instead, there's this sort of whisper down the lane game that Trump's good at where he gives an order to Mr. D'Olivera, who's one of the charged defendants, who in turn gives that order to Trump employee number four, Yusuf Tavares, who's now cooperating. So as a prosecutor, I absolutely want his testimony but it's not going to lock up the case for me. The evidence as a whole is strong, though, and he's going to be a good witness for them. Yeah, a lot of developments today. Ellie Honig, sure. Jeff Duncan, Jen Jordan, thank you all for being here tonight.
And we'll pick things up on the other side with another attorney for one of Trump's co-defendants. What does John Eastman's lawyer make of what happened today in court? What does it mean for his client? What is his next move? Plus, an escaped killer is still on the loose tonight. And we can see exactly how he escaped from prison because it is all on tape. Cameras were in the courtroom in Georgia today, but some spectators that you may not have seen that were also in the room were attorneys for other co-defendants in this case. As you might imagine, whether they were there in person or watching on TV, many of them are likely trying to gain insight into what could be in store for their clients. The attorney for one of those co-defendants joins me now, Charles Burnham, represents John Eastman. And Charles, welcome back. Thank you for, for joining us here on The Source again. What did you take away from today's proceeding and how it could affect your client, John Eastman? I think the most important takeaway was that John Eastman, I'm happy to say, does not look like he'll be proceeding to trial on October 23rd of this year. I, I, I didn't really think the judge was going to do that, but the prosecution took the position that they wanted to see that happen. And I was happy to see the judge um, indicate pretty strongly, as you said earlier in the show, that, that that's not something he's seriously considering. Uh, apart from that, I thought the judge, um, I, I was impressed with the way he handled the hearing and, and lawyers for both sides uh, did a quality job. Your client was not there today. He waived his right to, to have an arraignment and he pleaded not guilty. Have you, has the legal team made a decision about severing this case from the rest of the co-defendants, the other 17 of them that are not going to trial in October so far? I think there's a good chance that we will file a motion to sever uh, at some point. I think it's premature at this point. I, in my experience anyway, doing RICO cases, if you file a motion to sever early on, the judge will either deny it without prejudice, meaning with leave to bring it back or perhaps take it under advisement because you have to see how things play out, how many defendants actually go to trial. It's in, in a normal case, not every defendant does. You'll have to see how you're going to split up all these defendants. I don't think it's feasible at all to try anywhere close to um, 19 together or perhaps even some much smaller number than that. So the short answer to your question is I think it's highly likely we will file a motion to sever, but um, that'll when do you come think later. that'll When do you think that'll happen? Well, the judge actually, and another thing we learned from the hearing today is uh, in Georgia, as I'm learning, being an out-of-state attorney, the initial deadline for pretrial motions is 10 days from arraignment. Um, so perhaps we would have had to file some kind of motion to sever in pretty short order here, but the judge indicated today that he's open to extending that, and I think that's appropriate. So what about, we'll trying, to see. To, what about trying to move it to federal court? Are you waiting to see what happens to Mark Meadows' attempt to do that first? That's right. We're going to wait and see how things play out. The statute gives us a certain amount of time from arraignment, which just happened, as you mentioned, to make that decision or not. And we're still considering our options for Professor Eastman. But I do think the the uh, rationale of removal uh, very much applies to him. Like, what's the point of removal, right? The, the, the reason why that statute exists is structurally, we don't want to have state prosecutors interfering in federal policy, right? And so, in his case, what would happen if we lived in a world where any of the hundreds of state prosecutors all over the country could haul the president's lawyer, or any of his other advisors into court and subject them to the criminal process? There's good reasons why that uh, shouldn't be the way the system works. That applies to Dr. Eastman as much as it does to many others. And we're going to take a serious look at it. And we'll be deciding pretty soon here if we're going to take that step. Well, that's interesting because the last time you and I talked and we talked about whether or not he was going to make the argument that it should be in federal court, you and how much of a stretch that seemed, you seem to agree that it would likely be a stretch and that you may not ultimately be able to make the argument that, that he was acting in a federal capacity. 
You're certainly right. There's a technical issue there in that he wasn't a federal employee or... But is that a technical issue? Oh, it is a technical. There is some case law suggesting that if someone's acting in the capacity as an agent for a federal officer, such as the president, uh, the the removal can extend to them. Uh, The law on this is often not clear. There might not be a case exactly on point. So if we take that step, that'll be an issue for argument with Judge Jones, and he'll have to make that decision. But you're saying now you do think as opposed to two weeks ago when we spoke, that you do have more of an argument that he was a federal agent, even though he wasn't working for the government, he wasn't getting a government paycheck, he was in no way affiliated with the federal government beyond giving Trump legal advice. Oh, sure. I think it's highly arguable. If you look into the cases, there are federal contractors that have made the argument. There are other types of agents of federal officials that have made it. It's it's not the first time such an argument has been raised. And the the case law is not exactly clear on exactly how that should come out, but I think it's an argument absolutely available to Dr. Eastman, and we may end up making exactly that argument. Okay, well, that would be a novel attempt. We'll see how successful you are there. You know, most lawyers, I would say, generally speaking, advise their clients not to speak publicly before they have a trial. Your client, John Eastman, has been doing so, including in a recent interview where he made this comment. Mm-hmm. What I recommended, and I've said this repeatedly, is that he accede to requests from more than 100 state legislators in the swing states to give them a week to try and sort out the impact of what everybody acknowledged was illegality in the conduct of the election. I'll note that everyone did not acknowledge that. But is he not explicitly admitting there that he did want to impede the certification of presidential electors on that presidential electors on that day? No, no, not at all. Uh, his advice, as he said, so the Vice President Pence was not to impede the certification or somehow try to obstruct it or block it. His advice, and he stated this many times before that interview, was simply to impose a short delay in the process to allow the state legislators who, uh, legislators who weren't then in session to have one more look at the situation before reporting back to Congress, and then it would go back to Congress to make the ultimate decision. That was his advice. It remains his view today that that was appropriate. It's not obstruction. It's not impeding. It's not uh, anything of that. But it is impeding if you're saying to stop the process and and no vice president has ever delayed the certification of the electors before, right? No, not at all. I mean, the the suggestion that the um, process not be stopped, but that there be a delay is not unique to Dr. Eastman. There were senators that suggested something very similar. There were members of Congress. There's prior scholarship from other academic types that suggested such an option might be available to the vice president and Dr. Reesman. Yeah, but the Constitution there. says otherwise. It doesn't. What, per, what provision of are the Constitution? You worried, are you worried mm-hmm. that those comments could be used by prosecutors against, against your client? Have you advised him not to speak publicly? We made a decision a long time ago in this case. I've been representing John Eastman a long time. And the decision we made was that we are not going to um, sort of run the typical defense uh, playbook of hunkering down and refusing to talk. Our view is Dr. Eastman is innocent. He has nothing to hide. He's clearly innocent. He was acting in his capacity as a lawyer and a law professor. His views were well supported, though they may have been controversial. All the facts are more or less known. There's not a lot of mystery here. And we've made the decision that risky, though it certainly may be, to be as open as we can with uh, journalists such as yourself and with um, anyone who wants to talk to us. For the most part, we're happy to talk to them. So it is potentially risky for him to be speaking publicly, you think? Oh, sure. But that's how that's that's I think hopefully that shows to everyone how confident we are in our client's case and how important we think it is, how important John Eastman thinks it is that these facts be um, 
be presented to the public for their analysis. And we hope that if the facts are viewed fairly, openly, and with an open mind, that a lot of folks, even folks that might start out against us, will come to view the case as we do. Charles Burnham, attorney for John Eastman, thank you for your time tonight. Thanks for having me back. Up next, we have stunning video released by authorities today that showed just how a convicted murderer escaped from prison. He is still on the run tonight as there are major questions of his whereabouts. Tonight, a massive six-day-old manhunt for an escaped killer in Pennsylvania has gone from chilling to downright shocking. Take a look at this newly released surveillance video that shows how Danello Cavalcante was able to crab walk his way up a wall and out of a prison yard last week. Cavalcante was sentenced to life for stabbing his ex-girlfriend to death. That is why he was in that prison. And if you will believe this, the Chester County Prison says that he escaped the same way another inmate did also earlier this year. Tonight joining us for Perspective is former FBI senior profiler Mary Ellen O'Toole. Mary Ellen, thank you for being here. I mean, you have profiled these kinds of fugitives in the past. He has now been on the run for nearly a week. I mean, what is your sense of what his mindset is at this point right now? So at this point, there are two things that um, I would be looking at. I would be looking at how he is breaking down mentally and how he's breaking down physically. Even if uh, he has a real strong personality, still being out there in the woods, getting very little sleep, um, suffering probably some injuries, maybe because of the escape, being paranoid because there are 200 plus law enforcement people out there. Fugitives tend to break down physically and they break down mentally. And when that happens, they make bad decisions. They become very paranoid and then they start to make mistakes. That doesn't mean they become less dangerous, but it does mean at a certain point, fatigue does set in. And I think the marshal service and the law enforcement folks that are up there are actually exploiting this breakdown, which is what they have to do to be able to capture him. Yeah, you mentioned the over 200 people that are looking for him. They're using search dogs. We know there's been at least five credible sightings. They've found footprints of him, but he has still been able to uh, evade authorities for a week now tomorrow. I mean, what does that say to you? Well, the area up there says a lot where there are places where he could hide. Uh, it's, it's likely he's moving around more at night than in the daytime. He's not a large person, so he's able to maybe hide a little bit more effectively. But I think what's interesting is this. He has never been in this situation before. And when you have an offender in a situation they've never been before, again, they make mistakes. Secondly, it's not likely or it's certainly possible he has no idea how the investigation is going. So because he has no radio, no TV, he's not watching CNN. So he, he has a deficit of information that he's relying on. So sooner or later, those mistakes are really going to be what ca- would cause him to be captured. What did you see in that uh, remarkable video that police <coughs> released today of how he escaped out of that prison? When I first saw that video, I thought he had practiced that before. And um, he was able to do it pretty competently. And he was able to do it quickly. That did not strike me as the first time he had done that. Hmm. You think he had practiced it? It looked to me like he probably had practiced it. What did you make? I mean, the fact that they did not see this. There was someone who overlooks where they were. other inmates were playing basketball. They have, I believe, over 160 cameras at this facility, and they weren't able to, to see this or release it until today. 
Yeah, that's really hard to understand. Knowing how a, a prison or a jail is set up, um, that somebody didn't see that or somebody didn't come forward and say, hey, take a look at what's going on over there. So when they start talking about human error, um, somebody either had to not be where they were supposed to be or purposely maybe look the other way or look the other way. So they really do need to find out what happened there. Mary Ellen O'Toole, thank you for your expertise on this tonight. You're welcome. Coming up, a newly appointed special counsel says that Hunter Biden will be indicted this month after a failed plea deal. Back in a moment with someone who knows the inside of the White House and President Biden's mindset well. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Tonight, federal prosecutors say they plan to indict Hunter Biden by the end of this month. It is a head-snapping reversal for the president's son, whose plea deal fell apart in court. A new filing from the special counsel, David Weiss, suggests that it is related to Biden's 2018 gun purchase when he admits that he lied on a government form about using drugs. Weiss, who of course has been investigating Hunter Biden for five years now, was named special counsel last month after that plea deal went bust. Biden would have been essentially been pleading guilty to misdemeanor tax charges and working out the gun issue, but would have been spared prosecution on the gun charge in that plea deal. His lawyers maintain that the gun agreement does remain in effect. We will see, of course, if a judge agrees with that. In the meantime, sources close to CNN tell, tell CNN, the, the president, that his son's troubles have created a level of personal angst unlike any other challenge for him. My next guest has unique insight into Joe Biden's mindset. Franklin Four is the author of the new book, The Last Politician, Inside Joe Biden's White House and the Struggle for America's Future. And he joins me now. Frank, you followed the president. I mean, yes. this took two years. You spoke yes. to over 300 people. When it comes to an issue uh, that we've learned today about this news that Hunter Biden's going to be indicted, what did you learn about how the president handles something that's so sensitive to him, but also potentially so so explosive? Right. So on the most basic level, I think that as an institutionalist and somebody who's been around for a long enough period of time, I think he understands that he there's nothing he can actually do about it. I think one of the things that's, I think, painful for people around the White House about the Hunter Biden issue is that there's no strategic way to think about it because it's a father-son issue, even if it's also very clearly a political issue. And so this thing is out there in a corner, and it can't be processed in any of the conventional ways that they would process any other issue. And I think your reporting, I mean, obviously meshes with things that I've heard over time, that for Joe Biden, the idea that his own Justice Department is having to indict his son, whatever the merits of the case, is an intensely uh, uh, horrible feeling to have. Yeah, it's remarkable. Uh, this book has so much in it, just on the Biden White House, Biden as president, yeah. what that looks like. You know, there's a notable moment where it talks about how he dealt with criticism, how Biden deals with it. After him, Warsaw, I was there, he gave this speech, yes. he, he said at the end, he ad-libbed a line that Putin cannot remain in power. 
people were asking questions. You know, those speeches are carefully crafted. And he left home, he writes, feeling sorry for himself because he knew that he had erred, but then he resented that his aides had created the impression that they had to clean up his, his mess. And rather than owning his failure, he fumed to his friends about how he was treated like a toddler. Was John Kennedy ever babied like that? Right. So you have this set piece. It's at the end of the first month of the war in Ukraine. Kiev has managed to withstand Russian invasion. It's actually a moment of great personal and political triumph for Joe Biden, that the alliance that he helped pull together had held much better than anybody had anticipated. All these weapon systems that they'd shipped to Ukraine in advance worked. And then he wrote this speech on this trip that was intended to claim a little bit of credit for all of the work that he'd done. And it was a speech that was really pretty well crafted. It was quite eloquent. And then at the very end, he ad-libs this line, and that becomes the headline. And Biden has suffered— Understandably so. (laughs) Yeah, Biden has suffered his entire life for having this reputation as being a gaffe machine. And that's the thing that reporters gravitated back to repeating. And so for him, it was just—I think there's actually a measure of self-flagellation in his feeling sorry for himself, because— In the end of the day, he is reasonably self-aware about his screw-ups. He understood straight away that the line that he ad-libbed needed to be walked back. Nobody needed to convince him of that. But then the humiliation of being reprimanded by the world for that was something he he felt self-pitying about. And you also write, you know, there's what I loved was the foreign policy stuff in this and digging into that. And when he met with Putin in 2021 in Geneva, you know, he'd just taken office. He had not yeah. been there that long. It's kind of unthinkable now to, to look back at it. I was there for that. And he and Putin were sitting in this library and you can see Putin was in this kind of slouched position. And now we know because of your book what Biden thought about it. And you quote and say, Biden once described the pose to a friend as that of an a-hole school kid. <laughs> Essentially, you know, what he thought of him before even he had to deal with him the way that he is now. Yeah. So, well, that was a description that Biden would actually repeat over the years. And because Putin's slouch is a famous part of his persona, it's a way to compensate for his relative height to other foreign leaders. And Biden had thought long and hard about how to treat Putin as he came into office, because it wasn't hard to imagine that Putin was going to, at some point, be a menace to the Biden presidency and somehow throw his foreign policy agenda off. And so he decided that he was going to treat him with a measure of relative respect to, to, to make sure Obama had said that Russian was a, Russia was a power in decline. Mm-hmm. Biden was going to go in the other direction. And that G7, uh, uh, sorry, the Geneva meeting was intentionally designed. Rather than having it on the fringe of another meeting of world leaders, he was going to go to a separate city. It was going to have all these trappings of an old Cold War meeting. And it was going to say, all right, we understand you're an important country and we're giving you this gesture of respect. And now let's have a hard conversation. And of course, ultimately, that was a failed hand because I'm not sure there was any good hand to play with Vladimir Putin. Yeah, Putin walked out of that, you know, denying everything that Russia's done, interfering in the election, you know, yeah. imprisoning Alexei Navalny. Yeah. The other fascinating part of this looks into the relationship with President Zelensky, which initially was much rockier between the two of them than I think a lot of people would imagine, especially seeing, you know, all the interactions they've had now. And you write how they both kind of went into their first meeting not thinking much of each other. Biden, who had worked on Ukraine as vice president, viewed Zelensky as this amateur and thought he wasn't expressing enough gratitude. And you write that 
In their calls, Biden kept boxing Zelensky on the ears for trying to drag him deeper into this war. And you quote him as saying, you'd love nothing more than to draw us into World War III, he once told Zelensky. Right. So you have to imagine that they have this symbiotic relationship where there's this inherent tension that also exists in parallel. So Zelensky's job as president of Ukraine is to try to get the United States to deliver him as much military support as possible to make NATO membership as close as possible. Biden's role as president of the United States is to help Ukraine, but he also, as a child of the Cold War, worries about the prospects for escalation. And so in every meeting, he asks this question, if I give the Ukrainians this weapon system, is this going to lead us closer to getting mired into a conflict that spins dangerously off the rails? Yeah. And I mean, clearly we've seen that tension still exists, yeah. even though, of course, they're also working in partnership. Franklin Vohr, uh, the book is fascinating. It is The Last Politician. Thank you for Thank joining you. us tonight. Thank you. And speaking of Ukraine, there was a deadly new attack there today as the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, touched down for an unannounced trip to Kiev. More with a congresswoman from Ukraine next. In Ukraine, at least 17 people were killed, 32 wounded when a Russian missile hit a market near the eastern front lines. It was one of the deadliest attacks that we have seen in Ukraine for months. And it came as the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, made an unannounced visit to Kyiv. Despite that attack, Blinken said Ukraine's counteroffensive, in his view, has made real progress in recent weeks. Joining me now, Republican Congresswoman Victoria Sparts, who was born in Ukraine. Congresswoman, thank you for being here. You saw Secretary Blinken announce a new aid package today. This comes as there has been a divide, a growing one in your party over supporting Ukraine. But Senator McConnell came out today and said it's not the time to ease up. It's not the time to go wobbly. Do you agree with him? Well, I think, you know, it's important for us, you know, to uh, show that, you know, the evil cannot prevail. It's important. But it's also important for uh, President Biden to really communicate to the American people what is our strategy and why it is in our national interest for Ukrainians to win this war. It's not just because it's a brutal war. It is a brutal war. It's not just because we forced Ukraine to, you know, to uh, get rid of nuclear weapons and it's a slap in the face of United States by Putin, but it's also in our national interest to make sure that China and Russia are not going to take over Europe like they did with Africa and South America and doing a lot of things in Asia. So I think it's important to do that. It's important that Secretary Blinken not just do these incremental presentations, but actually provide weapons faster and more timely. If he would have provided a lot of aid, we are not providing anything new. This, all of the stuff that he's announced and been authorized last year. And he did in these increments, people think about, oh my gosh, you know, we keep sending more and more stuff. No, he should have sent way more stuff last year. It would have been different situation. A lot of people are dying and also it can escalate in serious, you know, crisis. But I think they've been very slow, very slow working and Republicans wanted a strategy and true oversight. They're not reporting to back to Congress, and I think it's unfortunate. Yeah, so you're saying that they need to do more. I mean, there has been a, a lot of aid going to Ukraine so far. So, of course, you know, the White House would push back on that. But what do you say about Republicans in your party who say we shouldn't give Ukraine any more funding? They shouldn't get anything else. 
But there are a variety of reasons why Republicans say a lot of people don't have trust in President Biden. And he has a pretty bad track record, what's happened in Afghanistan and how he didn't deal with, you know, to prevent this big war and being effective to, you know, push back and serious on Putin or to take advantage of some of the weaknesses of his policy. So I think, you know, they're rightly so that a lot of Republicans want to, you know, to see what is our strategy and what we're doing because they're very vague and very discreet on providing, you know, information to Congress where the money go. Not People need to understand a lot of these packages, money don't go directly to Ukraine. They go to a lot of other countries, a lot of other causes associated to Ukraine. So we need to know what's happening. They had over $6 billion error of, you know, on accounting for eight, you know, sent to Ukraine, for weapons sent to Ukraine. We need to find out what's going on. And he hasn't been brief in Congress for a very long time. And if he's not communicated to American people in Congress, people will start to lose trust. I understand what you're, what you're, the, Pentagon was the one that accounted for that that error there. But what you're saying is that there needs to be a better explanation of the strategy and where exactly the money is going from the administration. But there are members of your party who say that's they're not asking for conditions. They're saying no more money whatsoever. Are you concerned about that that growing feeling and sentiment in your party about no more funding for Ukraine whatsoever, regardless of strategy? Well, I think there are some people who have always been on both sides of the aisle that truly have convictions, you know, and I think that's okay with that. I think majority people in Congress that actually do support Ukraine, but I think if they don't communicate and not be transparent to Congress and American people, more and more people will start raising concerns. So I think it's very bad that president is not willing to communicate with us and be transparent. What's happening with a lot of aid? I think a lot of my colleagues, if we would address that, would address their concerns, you know, and I think dealing with internal issues, too. We cannot just say, you know, President Biden should need to do a better job dealing with domestic issues. They're not mutually exclusive. We need to have stronger foreign policy, but also domestic policies, because Americans' people are concerned. And I think he's been politicizing Ukraine too much, but it's a brutal war. A lot of people are dying. We cannot politicize. It costs a lot of money to us, but a lot of lives to Ukrainians. Congresswoman Sparts, a conversation we certainly want to continue further. Obviously, the White House would push back on the fact that they're not being transparent about that. But we're unfortunately out of time. Thank you for joining us tonight. We'll be right back. And thank you so much for joining us. CNN Primetime with Abby Phillips starts right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.